Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. We're partnering today with, and this is a long list, so I'll do it fast, the USC Dornsife Center for International Studies, the Departments of Anthropology, Gender and Sexuality Studies, Political Science, International Relations, Sociology, along with the Institute for Inequalities and Global Health, the Institute for Equity Research. You can see Allison has been very busy on this. Keck School of Medicine, Narrative Medicine, the Price School of Public Policy, the Levin Institute for Humanities, the Blackstonians, and the Institute for Advanced Catholic Studies at USC. We're going to have a conversation for about 40 minutes uh, and then open this up for questions from our audience. We have a terrific panel with us today, even though Congresswoman Nanette Barragon couldn't be here because of the chaos or the clown show uh, in the House of Representatives yesterday. But I'm very pleased to introduce the guests who are with us. Uh, Sophia Gruskin is the director of the USC Institute on Inequalities and Global Health and holds posts at Gould, Keck, and USC Dornsife. You must be tired. She serves on numerous international boards and committees, including the PEPFAR Scientific Advisory Board. That's the initiative that George Bush started in Africa and that has vaccinated or, or dealt with HIV for so many millions of people there, and which is under the gun right now, and the Lancet Commission on Gender and Global Health. Suji Rao served as senior policy advisor on the Biden White House's COVID-19 response team. He is now the director of the Public Exchange Health and Wellbeing Practice at USC Dornsife. Dr. Bradley Stoner is the head of the Department of Public Health Sciences at Queen's University and the former president of the American Sexually Transmitted Diseases Association. His research also analyzes the political and economic underpinnings of health and wellness and disparities in health care and health access. So I'm just going to throw out a question, then we'll just go down this way, and we can have a conversation. I have a bunch of questions, but if the conversation goes in different directions, that's fine too. What was the number one lesson we learned about our health care system from the pandemic? Do I get to go first? You do. All right, I'll take it. Okay, that we were prepared, that our systems are not well integrated, that those who lost the most are those who are the most poorest and the most vulnerable. And frankly, it's a lesson we shouldn't have to keep relearning. It's hard to limit it to just one, but I think one that I think kept coming up over and over and over the more that I think about it is that given our healthcare system, given how decentralized it is, there's a lot of positives that come from that in terms of innovation, R&D, experimentation, different models. But one of the biggest negatives is that emergency response and national coordination is really, really difficult when things are so decentralized and so federated and so atomized. Getting everyone to sing the same tune, getting everyone to work from the same plan, setting one plan that works for everybody is exceedingly difficult given our situation. Um, and that's something that just presented itself over and over. Bradley? For me, uh, the COVID crisis was, wasn't as much a healthcare issue early on because it wasn't anything to do with healthcare uh, uh, other than hospitalize it. It was really a health issue. And so I think the number one lesson we learned is how COVID unmasked and magnified disparities that already existed in society. Uh, for example, stay-at-home orders uh, were accessible for people who had jobs that would allow them to stay at home. But some people who had to work for a living still had to go in with them at greater risk for exposure 
um, and uh, healthcare outcomes were clearly worse for disadvantaged communities. How did we handle this pandemic relative to other countries? And what were the strengths and weaknesses that we saw in our response? You could start down there. Oh, where do we start? I think, um, uh, to me, uh, the issue was that the, the science base was evolving. And I, I don't think we communicated that very well early on, that, that we really didn't know what to expect. We had models. We had the original SARS outbreak uh, in the early 2000s. And I think a lot of us thought, myself included, that it would be you know a quick epidemic that would clear and then we'd get back to normal. So I think we didn't have models for how to deal with it. And I don't think we communicated very well that the, uh, the the knowledge base was going to change based it because new information was coming in, new models were being developed. Uh, so I think we could have done that a little bit better. Uh, I'm not sure other countries handled it that much better. I think we were all in a sort of a global gray zone. I'll pick up on that and say a couple things. On the communication front, I think if, if you all remember when you're a kid, you play the game of telephone, right? Where you're all like sitting in a circle, you whisper something in your ear and it goes all the way down. And by the time it comes out next to you, the message is completely gobbled and totally different. I think given what I mentioned earlier about the decentralized nature of our healthcare system, a corollary to that is that it takes a long time for new science, new learnings, or just new practices to sort of wind their way and disseminate their way all the way down to a doctor's office or a community clinics to where it actually meets real people where they are. And so as a result, when science is changing, when what we're learning is changing, when the effectiveness of certain treatments, which is something I know a lot about, changed it was really difficult to sort of disseminate that information down to the ground quickly, given just the entire stress that everyone was under, conflicting pieces of information. And then you layer on top of that, all the polarization that was happening that made certain messages not resonate, which we'll talk about in a minute. The other thing I want to say about how we sort of fared is, I think our healthcare system fared better than our social fabric did. Mm. There were a lot of situations in particular states or cities where the healthcare system bent, frayed, even broke for a little bit here and there. But for the most part, we did not have widespread collapse along the lines of what some other countries saw in certainly during the Delta and Omicron, Omicron era as well. And there are a lot of reasons why that I think that is the case. But that was one thing that I sort of observed. I think one of the weaknesses that it revealed, though, is that our pipeline of healthcare workers in this nation is extremely fragile, yeah. frayed. And if, if you've spoken to any clinician or healthcare worker over the past few years, they're likely burned out. They're likely thinking about leaving the profession. Uh, they're also likely not likely to tell someone to join the profession if they're considering it, which I think are, are tragedies as the son of a whole family of healthcare workers. And so I think that's one weakness that was sort of revealed is just how fragile, even though we have a world-class system when it comes to healthcare workers in this country, it's fragile. And I think the long-term outlook for it is scary when you think about we need to really drastically increase the number of trained and supported healthcare workers. We have. So spe- specifically to you, you you came in, I presume, in January 21 with the Biden administration, and we had the vaccine. We'd had it for a little over a month, simple to people. Were we ready to distribute it? What did you have to do to get it out there? The short answer was no. The government was not fully ready to distribute it and meet people where they were. What People say, and what I've said before is that, you know, vaccines does not equal vaccinations. You actually need a distribution plan of how you're going to get product out into the field, how you're going to make it easy, how you're going to leverage partnerships and community clinics and pharmacies and all of the sort of different nodes in our distributed healthcare system. How are you going to leverage those to make it super quick and easy and convenient and free for people to get access to a vaccine? And you know, at the beginning of the Biden administration, there wasn't a clear vaccination plan. And so 
you know, the team that I joined created one and, and rolled it out. When the president first took office, President Biden, he said, we're going to have 100 million shots in 100 days. And everybody thought he was crazy. And it turns out we did more than 200 million shots in 100 days. And that was because of deliberate planning and really- But really- you had to create a plan from scratch. Yes, right? essentially. Essentially, yeah. So we had, a vac- we had a vaccine suddenly, or we had several vaccines, but no plan about how to get them out there. I mean, not certainly not a way to get it out quickly, robustly, and certainly not with equity at the heart of it. I think one of the things that, that you mentioned, Sophie, is just how the pandemic revealed how the people that faced the most challenges in every aspect of life were bearing the brunt of this pandemic in so many ways. And so one of the things that, that we kept at the center of every strategy was we was at equity is the, at the heart of what we do. Now, those are just words unless you actually put them into action. And so one way is that you put them into action is how can we leverage partners and nodes and places in the field that are already providing services that are already known to people that face the biggest challenges or at the most risk? And how can we leverage those partners? And then, by the way, how do we get them vaccines so that they are ready early on to have large quantities of product to get into people's arms? And then how do we think about different unconventional partnerships? We worked with sports leagues, we worked with companies, we worked with mayors and governors and people all across the political spectrum and across the private sector as well, to sort of really try to create this moment of everybody all hands on deck. What can you do to make your community more likely to get vaccinated? Sophia? I want to go back to kind of our space in the global space more generally. And I would say that one of the things that was really difficult is that we showed a real lack of interest in global solidarity and in global action. Remember at that time, the U.S. was threatening to pull out of WHO. And remember at that time that there was fragmentation happening within our country in a way that had not happened before in in terms of public health in quite the same way. Now, one of the things I wanted to kind of pull out in terms of just being able to think about how it is that no country can do it alone. And I think there was really a sense within the U.S. as though we could do it alone or could not do it alone. The new White House national security uh, strategy, I wrote this down because I thought it was important because I thought it was a real response kind of what happened, which is we recognize that we must engage with all countries on global public health, including those with whom we disagree, because pandemics know no borders. And I actually think that that's key. And I think many of the things that we need to address pandemics, uh, surveillance, uh, finances, uh, dealing with intellectual property, development or distribution of vaccines, all of that requires coordinated global political leadership. And there's a critically important role for the U.S. to play in the global space. And when the U.S. is not playing that role, then it has real implications for what happens across the globe. And I feel like we were really a weak link at the global level. Yeah, several of you alluded to this, but can we talk about the impact of political polarization on the pandemic and what that means? I mean, when I was in grammar school, they lined us up one day, said, line up against the wall, you're all getting the polio vaccine. I mean, they didn't send a nose home to or anything like that. I mean, I was in a Catholic grammar school, and if you'd refuse to get vaccinated, you wouldn't have been in school anymore. We all got the vaccine. Are you surprised by the volume and intensity and political resistance from people who have opposed vaccines and earlier on resisted lockdowns? I mean, anybody can start. As a public health professional, yeah, I was very surprised at the politicization of science and the idea that science could be, science should be an apolitical tool, you know, used correctly it's it simply gives you information i think it you know can be open to interpretation but uh it's uh, i think that was new 
to me, this idea that there can be alternative facts or alternative interpretations <laughs> of uh, data. Um, now, science is evolving, and I go back to my communication concern that I think that the, initially it was like masks work, and then we find out, well, maybe they don't work as well as we thought we did. And so I think the communicating the, the fact that the, these databases change as new information comes in could have been done better, uh, but that there was so politicized in the vaccine resistance that came out of that because I remember those days, Bob, where you know there wasn't people weren't resistant to vaccine. It's just they didn't have access to it. And our job as public health professionals was to increase access. But now you had people actually pushing back and saying, "No, I don't want that." And that was a new. Yeah, I think that when I think about the impact of polarization, it was devastating and it was deadly. I saw this firsthand. So one of my jobs on the COVID team was to coordinate what we call the federal surge response effort, which was working with governors or other jurisdictional leaders, territories in some cases, cities whose healthcare systems were either fraying or at risk of being overwhelmed. The federal government had a host of resources that we could provide to help everything from personnel in some cases, whether they're from you know HHS teams that are kind of activated across the country. Um, in many cases, we deployed active duty military personnel um, who were trained because, one, as I mentioned earlier, there's no cadre of trained healthcare workers just like twiddling their thumbs ready to be called up in this country. Like everybody was working in their communities. So the only place to get extra personnel in many cases was the military. But what was, and then as well as tons of reimbursement through FEMA and all kinds of other federal coordination to get tests, masks, and whatever was needed. But the linchpin of that is that the governor had to ask. You have to ask the federal government for help. And early on in the pandemic, especially during the Delta wave, but also during the Omicron wave, there were states that based on the data, we knew they needed help. And we would call them on the phone every single day. My job, I was before I was coordinating the whole effort, I was in charge of the Southeast and the Texas. Oh, lucky you. <laughs> so I was on the phone very often or through email with, you know, the governor's team in Florida, and they just did not want our help. Now, did they need it? I would I would say yes. And to this day, there was an article in the New York Times a couple of months ago about this, about sort of like the cost in lives and suffering in Florida because of the sort of choices that they made and how they wanted to respond. And it was really, really hard. Those were dark dark days that I would come home and just sort of be like, what are we doing? Like, I just, these are public servants. You're supposed to be protecting the people you serve. And it just wasn't happening. Can I, can I, add, can I just jump on, yes. jump on that? Which is, yeah, I mean, the fragmentation by state, depending on, on kind of the attitudes. And, you know, I mean, I, I, again, want to just say two things. There were 46 states that introduced bills to try to limit governors or health officials' authority. Right. In terms of what they could do during pandemics or other emergencies during that, that is shocking to me. I don't know. I mean, I just find that crazy. I mean, I don't think it passed in more than 11 states, but it's the attitude that really worries me. And this idea, yeah, yeah, mistakes were made. Sure, sure. But it's the implication of this attitude and basically how this is going to limit the ability of Schultz in the future to be able to take the actions that are necessary to mitigate crisis. That's what really worries me. Now, I, I find it fascinating. I mean, Travis Kelsey and, and Taylor Swift are getting attacked, not only because they're an item, but because they're going out and encouraging people to get vaccinated. How do we do anything about this? I mean, are we stuck with this permanently? I read an article that was stunning. Nate Silver did this analysis of what happened in red states versus blue states. And in red states, after the vet, there's no difference between the death rates and the illness rates before the vaccine. After the vaccine, there are decided differences. And he asked the question, 
why are some of the red states killing off red state voters? What are we going to do about this? Anybody? I'll start. It's an impossible question. It it is an impossible. I was just going to say it's an impossible question. Okay. One of the things I want to think about trust for a moment and, and what it means to take people where they are and what it means to be able to take the time to recognize and engage with people one-on-one to deal with their concerns. That is incredibly, if I can say, expensive, right? It's very time-consuming to be able to do that. And yet it's critical to how we have to think about what is public health going to look like in, in the future. Heidi Larson, who is, I don't know if people know her work, but she really is kind of the leading expert on vaccine hesitancy. And she started doing work in polio. It wasn't, it didn't start initially around COVID, but she says that basically, you have to get to people's emotions. You have to think about beliefs, feelings, why people trust and don't trust, and you really have to be able to get into that space. So like I say, that may reframe how we think about what public health is and what prevention looks like. I'd add two things to that. I think that's really nicely put. I think building trust in a crisis is impossible, right? Like trust needs to be built ahead of the crisis so that when something happens, People rely on you and they know that you are a source of help or support or whatever it may be. And so I think that means the time to build trust in some of these communities and across lines is now when we're not necessarily facing so much of an acute crisis on the public health side, at least that we know of. The second thing I'll say related to what you said is we were always looking when it came to like vaccine hesitancy and try and coordinating the national campaign that we had that we can do this campaign. We were always looking for like, what's the right message, right? What's the, what's the magic words that we can say that will sort of cut through the noise or cut across political lines or cause people to put that aside and start to look at this question in a different way. And the answer was there was no magic words. What was way more important than the message was the messenger. And so the most effective, the most persuasive conversation is one that happens oftentimes in real life, not online, between people that already know and trust each other. So that was our strategy. We thought about it in terms of operationalizing that was inspiring, equipping, and empowering local community leaders to go out and do that work wherever they were, whether it was churches, communities, neighborhoods, whatever it may be. That's really hard to scale. But you have to start now and you have to keep doing it over and over and over so that when you need that bank of trust to deposit or to pull from, you actually have some at the bank. Well, that's absolutely true. Sujit, but leadership comes from the top. And we actually had a leadership that was, you know, uh, running, creating chaos by taking settled positions. Bob, you're talking about vaccination. I mean, these were settled. I never thought I'd see a day where, you know, vaccines were considered to be an option. uh, Now we've got people... And Sophia, when you said vaccine hesitancy, we actually, you know, had rhetoric that was leading people not to hesitancy, but actually refusal. Yeah, it's not like they're all wavering, but they're actually refusing the vaccine. And that was new. So the stark polarization about individual autonomy versus the greater public good, that's the kind of uh, argument that, that blew up, I think. I'm going to get to the inequities in a moment, both internationally and here in our own country. But first, I need to ask this since we've been talking about the pandemic a lot. A lot of Americans, in fact, probably a majority of Americans, vast majority, are acting like the COVID pandemic is over. And yet we see cases again on the rise. And I guess for a lot of people, this new vaccine shot, if unlike me, you're not on Medicare, one of the only benefits of being older, you have, they have to pay for the, the vaccine. So is the danger over? And what are our healthcare systems not doing that they should be doing? The era when COVID is sort of such a dominant force in our lives that drives our behavior day to day. I think I've been humbled by this virus many, many times, so I should be careful, but I think that era is behind us. And the reason why is I think we do now have 
a wide variety of really effective tools, whether it's vaccines, whether it's antiviral treatments, whether it's antibody treatments in some cases, um, although some of those are less effective against current variants. But we have a lot of tools and we have now three and a half years of experience in terms of living with it and understanding how to kind of make our decisions at a micro and macro level to make use of those tools. So I do think the era of what it felt like in 2020 and 2021, I think that era is behind us. But the new era is almost more challenging in some ways in the sense that people need to be much more mindful of their personal circumstances more, I think, than there's sort of not no longer kind of one-size-fits-all approaches that make sense. So I kind of personally, I think of it almost like the weather, where I am mindful of what COVID levels are like, and I let that guide my decisions about what kinds of activities I'm doing or whether I'm wearing a mask in a certain place or something like that. You know, in terms of vaccines, I think of it like the flu now, where every fall or right before the respiratory virus season, I will get a booster shot. You know, the CDC and the FDA have done a really good job this year of calibrating uh, the vaccine that's approved this year to be responsive to the variants that are circulating. And I think that knowledge will only continue to get better and better. So I think that is the the bright side that I look at going forward. That That is a very glass half full approach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the glass half empty, the statement is that COVID test positivity right now stands at 13.8%. And as a public health physician, I can tell you anything about 5% is considered to be a concern. You know, 13.8% and it's going up. COVID hospitalizations uh, last week alone increased uh, 2.7%. So uh, I think COVID is still here. Oh, now, is it, is it the same disease we had in 2020? Probably not. And I think it's it's likely to be here, unfortunately, just given how infectious it is. I think it's very difficult to kind of eradicate it. But to the question of how do we manage it? How do we prevent the most vulnerable people from being on, you know, and un- facing unnecessary risk? How do we prevent our hospitals from getting overwhelmed? I think those kinds of questions are ones that we really need to focus on now. Especially in states where people are not getting vaccinated. Right? And are, are people getting vaccinated? Numbers are really down. They're pretty, they're low now. They're pretty down. It, it's continuing to happen for sure. I mean, I think even now, those who face the most vulnerable, those who are most vulnerable due to advanced age or, or health risks mm-hmm. are the ones that should be prioritizing getting it. And I think there's still disproportionately more of them getting shots, but it obviously is way less than it was a couple of years ago. I have, I have a friend who lives in Louisiana, teaches there, and LSU will not cover, their health plan will not cover the cost of vaccination. And he said, there are lots of people on the staff, he went and got it, but there are lots of people on the staff who say, I, I can't spend $60 on this. Yeah. Now, this was this is a huge consequence of the public health emergencies ending and the lack of Congress providing any funding for ongoing pandemic response, including preparing for future ones, is that we're sort of reverting back to our default system, our default healthcare system in this country, which, as we know, is extremely inequitable. And as I mentioned earlier, is extremely sort of diffuse and decentralized, which just means that the people who face the greatest challenges are going to continue to have the highest barriers in getting care, unfortunately. Let's talk about, since we're kind of in a slightly depressed mood here. <laughs> Let's talk about the inequities. I really want to focus on two. First of all, if you look at vaccination rates in places like Africa, and you look at the record of the leading countries, the leading economies, hoarding vaccines to the point where some of them spoil, not even sending them to places like that. How are we going to deal with that? And then related to that, How about the barriers that marginalized and underserved groups faced in this country during the the pandemic and the lasting effect on communities of color and low-income groups? How are we going to redress both these problems? Another hard question. I'm going to not answer your question. Okay, let me give it a shot. All right. So 
I mean, I, I think the first thing we have to fight the narrative that these things all surface during the pandemic. They've all been here. It's been, this has been the reality. And so we need to be able to address the fact that this has been the reality. That's important in terms of trust communities who's most affected. It's also about how we can be most, most useful. There was the study in the Lancet last week that showed that when it comes to mortality in the United States, the gross inequalities amongst racial ethnic groups is the norm. It's not the exception. And that was the case for a study that was done between 2000 and 2019, so before the pandemic. And now, it's mortality data, but I think that the implications of it are, are really obvious. And we really need to be thinking about what it is about this deepening of divisions between the haves and the, and the have-nots. I, again, I come back to the fact that there's growing differences, not in terms of how it is that the pandemic impacts our lives, not just based on race and class, but based on what state we live in. And I'm going to keep coming back to the states, your friend in Louisiana, right? The differences in terms of how states are, are dealing is really, really important. We are so lucky to be having this conversation in California. And I, I cannot say that, that enough. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I, well, I'll, I'll just jump in. And, and you're absolutely right, Sophia. And it's not a small difference. The uh, Between uh, March of 2020 and June of 2021, uh, Latino and Black persons with COVID-19 were 2.8 times more likely to be hospitalized and 2.1 times more likely to die from COVID than non-Hispanic white persons. So it's it's a d- two or three time difference. So I think that those, those disparities are really profound. Um, it's really important to address that. I think on the global disparity side, I'm personally very proud of the fact that the Biden administration was kind of a pioneer in distributing and donating vaccines abroad. We committed to donating more than 1 billion doses. I think they've delivered more than half that already. And these were mostly to countries that were extremely populous countries that needed help getting more vaccines. Nigeria, Nam, Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, for example. And what we realized is just like I was mentioning earlier, how vaccines does not equal vaccinations, donations does not equal vaccinations. Sort of last mile distribution challenges across the world were very difficult. Cold chain storage, using different types of vaccine that had different temperature storage requirements and getting those out into the field, especially in remote locations across the world, was a logistical challenge that my colleagues were uh, wizards at navigating. But it goes to show you just how big of a challenge it is to address these kinds of inequities. It's necessary work. It's important work. But it is it is always a challenge to get sort of that last mile, especially when you're talking about globally. Can I put a little unhappy spin on that for a moment, or if I if I may? Which is that yes, the United States we did distribute it. We were starting to have that conversation kind of kind of over there. But we donated first to countries that were our strategic partners. We didn't donate first to the countries necessarily that were most in need. It, from my perspective. And I think that we have to recognize the way that politics plays into the ways in which even distribution was taking place. Well, before that, uh, in terms of vaccine nationalism, uh, wealthy countries uh, made pre-orders for vaccine even before the vaccine was available. So um, the uh, 32 richest countries in the world, accounting for less than 13% of the world's population, had pre-ordered uh, half of the, the vaccine that was going to be produced by Pfizer, uh, Moderna, and AstraZeneca. So um, the, the greatest number of vaccines, and I live in Canada now. Uh, Canada had pre-ordered uh, enough doses to cover its population nine times over. So there was plenty of vaccine. What happened with that extra vaccine? So that's supposed to go to COVAX, which is the the, the global vaccine distribution system. But why did wealthy countries have the, uh, the the need to lock into vaccine pre-order so quickly? And it, it's these two. Well, you know, we'll get everybody vaccinated here first. And you can understand the sentiment behind that. But in terms of global health equity, that kind of contributed to it. And I think people were so terrified. 
I mean, you know, if you were older, you were locked in your house or your apartment for a year, year and a half. And when the vaccine came, uh, and by the way, I was commenting before the panel, we talk about Operation Warp Speed as if this thing came out of nowhere at 11 months. If you looked at the, the people who won the Nobel Prize in medicine the other day, it turned out they had been fighting for years to use mRNA technology. And what happened was when the pandemic hit, Pfizer and, and uh, Biogen and Moderna went to them and said, we want to try your technology. We think this might work. So I think people were terrified. And I'm not sure that you can actually, in a similar situation, overcome this. If, if you went and said it in America as a political leader, if you said, by the way, Iran really needs a lot of vaccines, so we're going to ship a lot of vaccines to Iran. I'm not sure that that's politically viable. I'm not sure they would say yes either. I mean, if you think of the challenge I was talking about earlier, it, that was a factor on the global stage as well. Oftentimes, where the need was, was not where the appetite to cooperate was. Or, or China has its own vaccine, which we don't know about. They didn't have an mRNA vaccine for a long time. Right. And we knew that wasn't effective. Right. So that we knew that they were facing challenges. But of course, there's barriers for their ability to cooperate. Yeah. No, I just want to ask a kind of wrap-up question to me and then turn this over to the audience. What do we have to do to make our healthcare system more equitable, not just in a pandemic, but in general? Because as the statistics, Sophia, that you were talking about pre-pandemic indicate, there are incredible disparities. What do we do? I actually want to go back Please do the global if I can, because yeah. there's a couple of things I didn't say that if this is where we're going, if, if that's okay, because there's a, a, a couple of, of things that the Biden administration and other countries are being called upon to do. And I think we really need to talk about it now. Mm-hmm. It's really relevant to kind of thinking about going forward. The first thing is the pandemic fund. Um, which is supposed to have a $10.5 billion annual funding target, which is hugely under-resourced. But it's a question about if we're looking to get ourselves set up for the future is to think about where it is that the U.S., but other countries as well fit into that. The second is the pandemic accord, the pandemic treaty that is being negotiated. And the fact that Last week at, or two weeks ago at the General Assembly in the latest round, basically what came out was rhetorical. All the accountability mechanisms were thrown out. Basically, governments couldn't agree with anything that would have anything serious. And we have, it's a really critical juncture as we think about moving forward. So I really want to put that on the table. It's the international health regulations and what is happening with the international health regulations that everybody says need to be updated. But again, the question about whether there's government appetite for being able to think about how they need to be updated given current realities. And then how is it that we are going to, whether it's COVAX or other mechanisms, how we're going to ensure that because there will be another pandemic. And the question is how we make sure financially, basically, that we are ready and systems-wide that we are ready. And and the thing that I I just want to say is this coming year is a make or break political window. This is the year. And so the question about back to your very initial question, not initial, but one of the questions that you asked about kind of where are we right now and kind of where is it going? To me, this is the critical issue. We have a pandemic, we have pandemics around the corner and we need to recognize that. Bob, to your question around what what can we do to sort of make our system more equitable? I do want to say that we know what's possible. I think more equitable outcomes is not a pipe dream. It's not impossible. And I think what we saw in the context of COVID, especially with early vaccination efforts, is that 
when you center equity as part of your policy priorities, when you line up, when you secure resources and then line them up behind those priorities, you actually can make a big difference. I think you can really meet people where they are. You can provide care or support or resources or vaccinations in this case in a way that really kind of disproves what a cynic might say is sort of structurally inevitable in the US. Shifting gears a little bit, looking forward in terms of where are the opportunities in our healthcare system. If you talk to any clinician today or any researcher, especially, they're like practically giddy when they talk about the impact of personalized medicine. And I think the question is, can we make our system more nimble and more adaptable to start to deliver the promise of some of these advancements that can come from personalized medicine in a very different way than the way that we deliver healthcare now? So can we be much more nimble? Can we have much more creative experiments that are much more close to the ground that can actually meet people where they are in some of our hardest hit communities, in among some of our highest need populations? Because that's where you stand to gain the most from it. But if we know that if we leave things to where the way they always work in our system, that is not what will get prioritized. It requires intentionality. Intentionality. No, I couldn't agree more with what you said, Sujit, and also uh, Sophia. Uh, this is a make or break year. And I think access, re- eliminating financial uh, barriers to access, I think could go a long way. Uh, the Affordable Care Act helped, but we still have uninsured people uh, in the United States that don't have access. So like Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Now Canada has its own issues, uh, and um, uh, but access is widespread. And so I think uh, but there's also equitable uh, distribution of vaccine that's built into the system. So prioritization of, of vaccine rollout comes with the, which groups need it the most, which uh, disadvantaged groups. Uh, uh, indigenous communities got vaccinated before the general population. And that was an, an effort to try to inject some equity into the, into the process. Sophia, you were making notes there. Did you want to say something? Else? I am making notes. Okay. So, all right. I'm, I'm caught. I'm busted. Okay. What I was thinking about was when you were talking about personalized medicine, I was thinking about the implication of how you move that to a population level. Yeah. And I think that that's really kind of the key issue is how do you do that? And so the question for me then becomes, how do we think about equity in that? Right? It's really unclear. And what do you what do you mean when you say that it's a make or break year? Basically, what happens right now is that we are in a year where there are these major pandemic accords. There are these major mechanisms that are in place. If we have what everybody's calling pandemic amnesia, and we forget the last three and a half years that we've just lived through, and if we just don't prepare, then basically what we're going to end up is exactly where we were, but worse the next time it comes. This is really the time, because this is when all these things are being. There will be another pandemic, and we just don't know when. That was the cheery news. <laughs> we hear about violence all the time in the news, yet we rarely hear stories about peace. There are so many people who are working hard to promote solutions to violence, toxic polarization, and authoritarianism, often at great personal risk. We never hear about these stories, but at what cost? On Making Peace Visible, we speak with journalists, storytellers, and peace builders who are on the front lines of both peace and conflict. You can find Making Peace Visible wherever you listen to podcasts. Let me turn this over to the audience. Yes. Um, you guys have seen a lot about like making changes, prioritize disadvantaged communities. But after your like the failures to actually effectively like vaccinate and help those communities, why would they trust you now? So the question is, why would disadvantaged communities trust in new efforts to achieve equity given experience during the pandemic and the inequities that fell on them? 
I think the question of whether people trust entities that have let them down in the past is A, an extremely tough one, and B, is one that it plagues us on any number of fronts right now. What I do know is that we have seen a number of examples that show that it's possible, that show that you can actually deliver better outcomes for disadvantaged communities. I think the vaccination efforts were actually a huge success on that front in terms of making vaccines available widely, freely, uh, conveniently within five miles of people, setting up partners, uh, partnerships with community partnerships, making it available at free clinics and communities. I think there are templates that we've seen to be effective, be effective in that case. I think candidly, the challenge is taking the other side of my own argument is something that was successful in sort of a once in a lifetime pandemic crisis situation. How do we take lessons from that and make them replicable? in a situation where we don't have effectively unlimited resources made available by Congress, where we don't have things on the front page of the newspaper every day, where we don't have every political leader willing to talk about it and willing to do initiatives. How do you create space for success and momentum and unconventional partnerships when you don't have that kind of air cover, for lack of a better word? Um, That remains to be seen, but I think that is kind of where the rubber meets the road going forward. One example I think that we've learned from this is that that uh, public health can't be paternalistic. It has to uh, engage partnerships with with community leaders. So I think the the next time around building trust has to uh, be a partnership with uh, members of communities that are affected, um, so that there's not just one message coming out that's uh, this is what you have to do because we say so. Yeah, public health has tended to retract to that. And I would also say that that there have been so many good examples, just to really follow up on that, of communities leading, not following, that we really learned kind of in, in this period. And so it's really a question about how it is that those uh, community leaders can help to grow and champion other community leaders to be able to do that. I, I actually feel more positive about that than a lot of the other negative things I said, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I think what, one great sort of effort that's underway is to shore up and replenish our public health workforce, but particularly focused on training and equipping people within the communities where they come from so that you have more local embedded expertise and and resources that are kind of available. Because it goes back to what we were saying earlier about you know the most effective conversation is one that happens between two people that know each other and trust each other. Allison? I'd like to follow up on that or a question about the training. If what sorts of changes have there been in medical schools, um, public health schools, what sort of training should be provided that would enable these government officials to respond more effectively? And I was thinking also about the question of the unhoused, because in the United States, we have so many people who are living in conditions of homelessness. And it was my understanding from people at the inner city law center that it was difficult to persuade people to trust doctors they'd never met to you know, to give them a vaccination and then to find them again to, for the follow-up. So I was thinking of that as a specific example of something that might be part of a training. I know some of you have done a lot of training. Yeah. Uh, let me just uh, quickly say one model that we use in public health now is called community-based participatory research, where uh, research ideas are generated in concert with community members and put forward and, and operationalized. And so that's not the, it's not the only model, but it's a model that develops information that then can then be put into practice. That was a great opportunity for me to talk about some of the work that we're doing right here at USC um, at Public Exchange with the team I'm honored to be a part of, where this question of training and equipping our healthcare workforce in the country, I think, is sort of an existential level challenge for us on the healthcare side. Um, So what do we need to do? I think there are a number of things that are opportunities. Number one is we need to stop the flow 
of people leaving healthcare worker professions and clinician professions because they're burned out or overworked or unhappy. If you talk to most people who go into those professions, they did it because they want to take care of patients. So what can we do to free up more of their time to give them better kinds of supports, both on the emotional and well-being side of the house, as well as just the process improvement, how they actually do their work? I will plug our own work here and say that there's a really exciting study underway right here at USC with Keck to do exactly that, which is to test interventions that are designed to prevent healthcare worker burnout, mitigate healthcare worker burnout, so that people can stay in the profession longer. Another opportunity I see is if you look at some of the disruptions that are coming to our labor workforce because of AI and technology, how can we create pathways for people whose jobs are about to be disrupted to transition over to a healthcare capacity where we're less likely to be in a technology disrupted position going forward. We have an aging population. We have a population that as much as 50% of us are at risk of diabetes. Going forward, we just need more people in this industry. And so can we think of bridges to bring people over? And then third, can we think of ways to train people faster? Can we get people sort of uh, distributed work for, I mentioned earlier that we don't have this cadre of people that are just like laying around with healthcare worker skills doing other jobs. What if we did, right? What if we actually did have at scale, everybody having base levels of healthcare training that they weren't able to use in an emergency or an emergency, things like that. I'd love to see stuff like that get underway. Can I just, just add, I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally with you on just two things. We had, in terms of public health education, there were more young people applying for public health training in 2021 and this 2022, 2023 than ever in the history of public health nationally, right? So that's been like hugely important. And then the question is, how much do you grow kind of your public health training? So here at USC, we have a, a robust master's of public health program. There was a really honest debate about how big should we let our class get? Right. And like, what does that actually mean in terms of actually being able to think about about how to do that? So I think one of the things is basically to be able to think about how do we harness the, the good energy of, of young people who realize that this is something big and that they realize they want to do something with this in terms of the, their lives. The second thing in terms of how is it that we think about what kind of training? Like, I 100% agree with all that. But I also think, and it goes, I think, Allison, to the other part of your question, is how is it that we train people in public health to really be focused on the social determinants of so that they're actually recognizing how housing is relevant, how education is relevant, how all of those things are relevant, how structural racism is relevant in terms of being able to think about how is it that those things become part of a public health person's responsibility, not just some idea out there. As the non-expert on this panel, I'm going to add one thing that goes to your question about homelessness. My wife is very involved with the Downtown Women's Center, which deals with thousands of women on skid, skid Row who are homeless, they managed to vaccinate an extraordinary number of people. I mean, doctors came there, not because these folks knew the doctors, but because they trusted the Downtown Women's Center because it's where they could go to get food. It's where they could go to have a, a little bit of a social life with somebody. It's where they could go for employment counseling. So I think all of this says that you've got to integrate, and what do I know? You've got to integrate the healthcare delivery system with the agencies and people who are actually trusted by the folks who are suffering the greatest inequities in the system. And uh, to the Women's Health Center, Downtown Women's Center, that um, they absolutely instill program of hiring people to help them have like temporary jobs, being that community 
health workers can be quite a very short period of time, a large number of temporary sort of um, people to facilitate the thick bridge between person needing the health care and the health care workers. Very interesting comment on the Downtown Women's Center here in Los Angeles, hiring people to be intermediaries to go out and help folks get the health care they need, the vaccination they need. And it was an outreach program that worked. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't a lot of training. It wasn't like, they didn't get a master's, <laughs> but they mastered enough that they could go out. They could have a big impact on the community. And just to connect with people. Um, I live in San Francisco. One of the things I find very incongruous is during COVID, which was treated as kind of the second coming of the Black Plague, everything was locked down. Twice as many people died of fentanyl overdoses than did from COVID. And that continues. I think it was the same in L.A. County. And yet all we're hearing about is COVID and vaccination outward. That is, people are literally dying in the streets every day. I suppose the implication of the question is, why aren't we focusing more on that? I, I think we should. We absolutely should. It's a crisis. It's no longer substance abuse. It's substance poisoning. So people are dying of preventable overdose. Uh, and we're, as a society, we haven't embraced that. Uh, so on public health, we talk about harm reduction. So we uh, in Canada now, there's safe use sites, not just safe injection sites, but safe supply sites where you can go and actually get you know drugs that are not you know are not laced with fentanyl, and that's controversial even in Canada. But it's it's a it's a movement that really needs to be looked at, and we need better evidence to support that. But I think society is really under recognizing the, the impact that this is having on on our young people. Uh, we have actually seen a, a decrease in the longevity for the first time in probably a generation or two life expectancy. It's a good example. I think also something you mentioned earlier, Brad, which is around public health needing to be you know driven by data, driven by science, mm-hmm. and that's true. But also. Oftentimes, public health interventions are exercises in political communication, right? Because ultimately, you're trying to affect people's behavior, trying to get buy-in. And that requires political communication, which requires you to sort of like work in the space of, of, of politics in that, in that, in that way. Yeah. And I think to, to your point about sort of the disparity between the attention and, and what's happening is about priorities and about who's speaking and what, whether it affects them and whether they see it as approximate. Uh, challenge to to them when they when they have a microphone or they have a platform, and I think it's a good example of issues that affect marginalized communities rarely make it to the front page or to the top priority list of of officials. And I think it's great. I also think, by the way, had we not, had San Francisco not, had LA not, and California not reacted to COVID the way it did. You might have had much higher death rates. You you might not have been talking about fentanyl casualties being twice as high as COVID casualties. They could have equaled each other because this was an incredibly infectious disease. Yeah. No. I, I, yes. And yes. But the only th- the only thing that I would add is I want to c- c- come back to the harm reduction uh, perspective, which is also the, this question about what does it take to decrease the stigma that it is around um, the people who use drugs and their ability to access the drugs that they need, right? And how do we think about doing that? So that is a public health messaging issue. But it, all, it is also about how do we change kind of the perspective of how we understand what is public health, right? And so so I don't disagree. I didn't actually know those numbers, frankly, until you just said that. Um, so, but I think in general right now, I think that what I 
feel positive about, I mean, I've only been back in California now about 10 years, is that I do think that there's a lot of conversation here now about harm reduction and about actually thinking about how do we mitigate and how do we deal with drug overdose in such a way that we can actually support communities. Okay, I'm going to go one more over here. Just for us to go back to that issue of the polarization in the country, because obviously, like, crazy polarization, um, demonization of public health. Um, if you go into central Illinois, you see all these copies of that book against Fauci. People are, well, yeah. you know, see him as, yeah. and I think that's really tricky for the future, that we are getting that polarized on, him, on the health. And for instance, there is just an article, I think it's today or yesterday in the Washington Post, saying that the red states on everything, I mean, it's like wearing seatbelts or a helmet, you name it, they're they're way behind. But then when it comes to things like infectious diseases, pandemics, we have half the country that just will not get the program at all. We we felt this problem in California. Reset the CHIST data, the California Health Interview Survey just said that a third of Californians will not get a booster. 11% in the future will not wear a mask, no matter what. So that's just here in California. Uh, but I just wanted to hear from the panel a little bit more on this uh, specter that we have. I mean, I don't see it being easily reversed. Friends of mine are fighting those battles on the reproductive rights rest, and it's, it's going in the you know worst direction. So the specter of polarization, people even in California, a third of them, you say, don't will not get a booster. A percentage say they'll never mask again, no matter what. Uh, you go into central Illinois and people are selling books about how Dr. Fauci is the devil. I mean, these do seem like pretty insurmountable obstacles. Paula Tavro from uh, Not to Be Polarized, the uh, public health. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. I think it's a great question. I I don't know if there's a good answer. uh, It's the greater public good versus individual autonomy. And that's really what this is about. Uh, people have uh, clear ideas about what public health should and shouldn't be doing. And and I think um, restoring trust, I mean, uh, Sujit, you talk about this, and, and Sophia, the idea of trust in our public health system has really been challenged, and I think uh, it'll take time to rebuild. Not an easy answer. Okay, I promise I come back to you. Last question. So my question is, uh, about 10 days ago, I ran an investigator piece, and it was about uh, attacks uh, on health mission and misinformation researchers. In particular, and those attacks came. Of course, some of the human fighters, but Representative Jim Jordan was mentioned as, as one of the key figures. It's like so my question is: so, in other words, academic institutions are are part of this four size that This seems to have had an impact on health information researchers losing access to funding, uh, NIH losing by hundred million. So, given the attacks on those who expose misinformation about health, what can academic institutions do? to push back and to preserve the integrity of the information that gets to the public and make sure that people know real facts, not alternative facts? I don't have an answer, clearly, but I have a a couple of thoughts of things that I think are really, that I kind of want to put out there. So one thing is, is that I think one of the issues for faculty is this question in terms of being able to think about what's respected as scholarship in terms of promotion. And so for junior faculty, it's really a question for them in terms of how is it that the work that they're doing in this area can be respected. And that's something that universities can do by 
touting that and not hiding that. So I think that that's kind of one, I think, really important area. Yeah, I would just quickly add that I don't have great answers, but I do think being clear-eyed about the stakes of this kind of research and this kind of work is important for those who are doing it. So on both sides, number one, I think that the ordinary, and I'm painting with a broad brush here, so I apologize, the ordinary sort of like rhythm and incentives of academic research is to come up with a question that's novel and interesting, gather evidence, study it, and then scream as loud as you can about the findings so that hopefully somebody listens, reads it, builds on it, informs policy, whatever. That last piece can be a little bit dangerous if you're thinking about combating misinformation. And so we need to think carefully about, okay, what am I going to do with the learnings here? Number one. Number two, from just like an OPSEC operational security standpoint, like how am I going to protect myself in the form of doing this work? How is the institution I'm working with going to protect me? And if we're going to endeavor to do this kind of work, and I think you need to be really intentional about that kind of work. On the other side of the coin, it is so vital. It is such important work. It is like you know, national security level important. And I think it ought to be treated with national level rigor and, and seriousness. I don't have a whole lot to add, but other than this is not a new phenomenon, it's just the it's been ramped up. The stakes are higher, but people working in the reproductive health space, as I do, have been subject to this for a long time. So um, you know, there is some concern about personal safety, and it's. Uh, I think we just have to uh, be on the on the side of what's right and do the, proceed with. But in some states, by the way, I think you're going to see researchers and scholars leaving public universities. Sure. Because they can't they think they can't do their work there. Can, can I add to that, which is that you also see we've had more uh, students who want to come here to be trained because they don't want to be in states where abortion is no longer possible, right? right. So it's basically changing kind of the face of, of student, the, I mean, for exactly the way you're saying. Lawyers and, and employers, just, sorry. oh, employers. Yeah, yeah uh, the, the curriculums are being monitored as well. So you can't teach critical race theory in certain states. You can't, you can't read Anne Frank's diary. Yeah. So you say it's, it's ridiculous. And that is an opinion that I'm stressed. <laughs> uh, uh, so I want to thank our panelists, not just for your insights and your candor about an issue that I fear may get neglected over time as we get more complacent, but for your contributions and for the difference that you've made that has almost certainly, in each of your cases, it belongs. Uh, I'm going to thank all of you in our audience and apologize to you for not getting to, to your question. And this discussion will soon be available on YouTube and Facebook, and our Bully Pulpit podcast will be online in the next few days. Finally, once again, Allison, thank you. This wouldn't have happened without you. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.